The weak always suffer when the strong falter. He is a minister of God to you for the good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is a minister of God as an avenger to execute wrath upon the one who does evil. Romans 13, verse 4. Have you ever had something gnawing at you for a long time, something that you can't exactly pinpoint? You know there's something wrong, but you can't explain it. Then when it pops up into your conscious mind, you are relieved on one level, but bothered on another because what was softly nagging underneath is now up in your face. That happens to me more than I wish it did. The most recent example is regarding the film version of The Lord of the Rings. It was a masterpiece of human achievement on so many levels that I guess I just failed to grasp consciously some aspects of it that unconsciously have been bothering me for all all this time. Now, I won't overload you with all my complaints, but one aspect popped up in my face just recently, and now that I know what it is, I should have been consciously aware of it when, when I saw it, but for whatever reason, it slipped under my radar screen, but it's this. Aragorn is presented not as a wise, self-sacrificing hero who gladly gives up his comfort for the good of those he is protecting. He's not pictured as the hidden, soon-coming king who is mature enough to patiently wait for the coming day of his crowning and endure whatever he's got to go through while he's waiting. Tolkien describes him in this poem, All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Not all those who wander are lost, but instead Aragorn is portrayed in the movie as a wandering lost child in need of reassurance. And who gives him the reassurance? Arwen, his fiancée, the one he should be protecting and guiding and reassuring, is the one who protects and guides and reassures him. Now, if you think I'm straining at a gnat to swallow a camel, just consider that in popular drama today, and this has been true now for many years, but it's gotten profoundly worse lately, There's a trend to present the masculine as being in desperate need for the masculinized feminine to come be his knight in shining armor. The muscular damsel has to come rescue the warrior in distress. Now, certainly women can rescue men at times. I know that. I know that from personal experience. But it's not the norm. The concept is meant not to merely demean men and exalt women, but the concept is meant to to level the playing field in order to desecrate the God-ordained pattern for human relationships. 
The first sign of Arwen's presence on screen is introduced by the form of her phallic sword under Aragorn's throat as she playfully asks him if it was common for a ranger to be caught off guard in the wild. Now, some attempt to excuse this perversion by citing Arwen's elfish age. And uh, that won't work, because reminding us that she's, after all, an elf princess and therefore hundreds of years older than Aragorn would only serve to make her a mother figure instead of a hairy-chested female warrior savior. Either way, Aragorn is reduced to the needy victim instead of the heroic masculine servant king Tolkien intended him to be. In pagan culture, this overturning of the true masculine and the true feminine is common. But now there's a subtle, maybe not so subtle, crafty encroachment into our most beloved Christian literature. And little by little, it eats away at the heart of what is meant for man to be uh, in his heroic, masculine, kingly role, and what is meant for woman to be in her discerning, responsive, uh, and uh, intuitive role. Now, and especially in her, her need to be protected by him. The, the idea of a woman being protected by a man uh, has got to be done away with by the progressives energized by the powers of darkness who hate the masculine and the feminine because they're the image of God. Now, let's not be so foolish as to disregard these encroachments because they're small. You know, they're in movies, so they're, they're, that's no big deal. It's a movie. No, they are dangerous because they are small. N-O-T is a small three-letter word. Would it matter to the ultimate meaning of the Ten Commandments if the word N-O-T was left out? Thou shalt kill, thou shalt steal. I think little things can make a big difference. Did you catch, for instance, the, the subtle entrance of poison into the recent film version of Prince Caspian, the Chronicles of Narnia? Those who've never read the story would never know the vast amount of pure gold in the books that was replaced by brass in the movie. But here's a glaring and arrogant change uh, imposed on the story, which to me is on the same level as leaving you know, tea out of the Ten Commandments. There's a conversation between Aslan and the children in which the children are asking how things might have gone if a certain event had not happened the way it did. In the book, Aslan responds by saying, quote, You can never know that. But in the film, they have Aslan saying, We can never know that. Now, to those already poisoned into spiritual imbecility by the encroaching spirit of error, this has no meaning. So what? But to those who are still awake enough to see and hear, we know that such subtle removals of the underpinnings of truth, a nail here, a screw there, an underpinning here, a pillar there, will eventually bring down the entire structure. Nothing will survive if the foundational reality of who God is and then who man and woman is, nothing can survive. Truth will die. Courage to stand for truth will die. Psalm 11 verse 3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what, what can the righteous do? The loss of the vision of God will naturally lead to the loss of the image of God in man and woman. 
The hatred of this truth results in the loss of meaning. Without meaning, there's no passion. With the loss of passion, there can be no reason for courage, for there's nothing left to care about. So there's certainly nothing left to fight for. In such a scenario, the only spiritually uh, viable concepts today which are allowed uh, is that of the self-absorbed, pietistic quietism, a private, non-threatening relic hiding behind its own sacred walls, talking to itself. That's what some people think of as the church. Now, nothing's worth dying for, so nothing's worth living for. In such a society, everything becomes quickly boring because it's all too shallow to hold any interest because it's too shallow to have any meaning. Then amusement has to be constantly innovative to keep the attention of the immature masses. Emotional retardation is inevitable. The goal of this demonic attack is to not only blaspheme God, but to seduce God's people into a place of witless, passionless, stale, bored passivity in the face of evil. What could be more useless in the eyes of the world, in anybody's eyes, than this idea of the church as a gathering of self-focused religionists talking to each other about invisible things in the midst of a world of real problems and needs. The God of this world hopes to use the system to keep us intimidated and introverted. Castration is just as good as annihilation. In fact, it's even better because passionless and impotent, we become living symbols of a dead religion, where if we were dead martyrs, we might inspire some passion for living truth. We're not supposed to sit inside our church buildings and mind our own business while the real world, so-called, carries on with the important issues of life. We are to confront and overthrow evil, among other things. The disintegration of this call has greatly contributed to the loss of masculine courage, leadership, and heroism among Christians. Before we examine how to regain it, wherever it has been lost, and thankfully it's not lost everywhere. We need to examine a counterfeit of masculine courage so as not to be tricked by the counterfeit. You understand also, when I speak of masculine courage, I'm not just limiting that to the male gender, but the power to stand, the power to lay one's life down, which many women have exhibited through church history. But let me backtrack a little bit. Nearly 20 years ago, when I wrote Against the Night, I can still remember how my hand trembled. My eyes were wet, and I could hardly see the page clearly enough to write. When men have lost all reason, and evil seems to win, then compromise is treason, and silence is a sin. Let all who hate the darkness prepare to stand and fight. The children of the morning must stand against the night. The shaking in my hands and the tears in my eyes were not from grief, but from passion, fueled by a holy anger. This wasn't an anger I would ever need to repent of. On the contrary, I would be in sin to ever give up this kind of anger. It was not an anger that hated the enemy that was in front of me, 
but it was more a holy zeal that loved the family that was behind me. It was a kind of anger against evil that's rooted in love and expressed in a willingness to lay down my life for the rest of my life. The call was to stand against evil, not by attacking evil with more evil or with evil's tactics, but destroying evil by living in the opposite spirit. Romans 12:21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But over the years, the battle got harder. It seemed like the invading forces of rot and moral disease seemed at times to be overwhelming. I got tired. I got tired of divorces, tired of molestation stories, tired of crooked politicians and crooked lawyers and crooked judges and a seemingly endless parade of church activities that were Ph.D. programs and how to miss the point. The danger of living in the heat of battle is that it's easy for a subtle loss of focus to creep in. And before you know it, you're no longer fighting for the love of family that is behind you as much as you begin fighting out of hate for the enemy that's in front of you. Then, without realizing it, in little ways, but growing worse, you can begin to treat those you love, the ones you love the most, as if they were part of the problem. You, you don't do it consciously. But when this happens, the evil you claim to be against has encroached upon your very camp. I have met the enemy, and it is me. In the upside-down kingdom, which is really the right-side-up kingdom, where rulers serve and gaining life means losing it, and losing life means gaining it, Fighting successfully means loving our enemies. But little by little, I lost sight of that truth. In my last letter to you, I confessed to you about the failure in this area of my life. And most of you will know that the lead article was uh, more of a confession of sin on my part than a teaching. I confessed a sin of anger. Now, notice I didn't say the sin of anger. I do not refer to the sin of anger because I don't believe that anger is of itself sinful. But mine had become sinful because it had become hurtful to the very ones I claim I was most concerned for. It's a common cancer in spiritual circles for a once pure zeal for truth to disintegrate into self-righteous pride. We can become so focused on the battle out there that we lose clear sight of the reason we're fighting. If it goes unchecked, a perverse confusion slips in. Before long, what was once clear becomes muddy. What was once pure becomes mixed. Zeal energized by love devolves into zeal for its own sake. We would never say it out loud, but inside a dark and dangerous spirit of self-righteous pride begins to view love as weak and sentimental, compromising, instead of realizing that love is our only real weapon. In such a mindset, love is unconsciously set aside because it must not be allowed to get in the way of the great battle for the truth. I remember years ago being in a church meeting where there was an argument going on 
an in-house argument over certain doctrinal concepts, secondary concepts. They weren't primary concepts. They weren't anything that would decide heaven or hell for anybody, but the heated battle that went on in the room. And somebody finally spoke up and said, you know, we're supposed to love each other. And the response from one of the leaders was, you got to be careful about that love business. All this talk about love, love, love sounds real spiritual, but without truth, it's all a bunch of hogwash. Now, in itself, that statement may be true. I mean, it is the spirit of truth that we have to to seek out. But, on the other hand, was the spirit of truth in the statement this man made about hogwash? I don't think so. On the other hand, can a lover of truth fail to be a lover of people? On the other hand, can love survive if truth is not honored? But on the other hand, can truth matter if it's not rooted and grounded in love? We could go on and on with this. You get the point. There's a kind of anger that's not helpful, but at least it's not hurtful. Like when you get angry at the chair because you stubbed your toe on a chair leg. You know, blaming the chair won't hurt the chair. Only the character of the owner and his throbbing toe is hurt by that kind of anger. But there's another anger that's not merely unhelpful. It's destructive. It shows itself when we rail at someone or something in order to relieve our own overheated sense of injustice or our insulted pride. Lashing out at another at their expense or carrying around a belly full of overheated frustration even if it never erupts openly, can be hurtful to the point of being life-destroying. Anger that erupts and keeps erupting, or that boils silently and keeps destroying secretly, is coming from poison. The silent disdain that never erupts can be just as bad or worse than the kind that spews all the time. In fact, when Jesus, the living Torah, explained that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't mean he came to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it, to fill it full. So in Matthew 5.21 and following, when Jesus quotes the Torah prohibition against murder, he says, quote, But I say to you, whatever is, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, what does he mean without cause here? He's not giving you a loophole to say, well, if, if I have a cause, then I can be really angry. He's saying the phrase there, without cause, should be understood. Anybody with an unreasonable refusal to let it go, accompanied by a barrage of hurtful words meant only to injure and never to restore. That's the meaning of being angry without cause. The cause he's referring to is restoration. If you're angry with no desire for restoration, you're in, you're in trouble. He says you're in danger of the judgment. Then the next phase, and these are these are progressions. Whoever is angry enough to call his brother Racha shall be in danger of the council. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, without going into too much detail, Racha, among other things, means to spit in somebody's face. That's why it sounds like that. I mean, you you don't want me to demonstrate it here, on a, and I don't want it on my microphone, but. It sounds like you're clearing your throat, Rach. 
And, and the idea here is that you disdain someone so much that you don't want to discuss it with them. You just spit on them, which is pretty gross and uh, probably wouldn't go very far in restoring a relationship. But Jesus is saying, you know, spewing and ye- yelling and screaming is, is one thing. Spitting in somebody's face is another thing. But then he says, but whoever shall say, you fool, places himself in danger of the very damnation he is so arrogantly conferring on the other. He says, you who say, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Why? This phrase, you fool, here in its context, is declaring the other person so unworthy that even divine mercy is not going to help them. You are damning them and destroying them. And this this includes, by the way, gossip and slander. It is it is destroying a person's true identity, either with cursing them or or slandering them in conversation. It's pretty serious. Now Jesus is putting this in a progression of damnable anger. The first one is the one that's loud and boisterous and cruel, the one we would all tend to judge as the worst. Jesus says it's not as bad as the other two. The second one, a spit in the face, is bad. We would all say maybe that's as bad, if not worse, than the first one. But Jesus says, no, here's the worst one, the one one that is most common in church life, the one that is most common in maybe all of our lives, to just indifferently, with disdain and arrogance, destroy another person with our words and damn them as if they are not of any value. Now, these comparatively small hell seeds, I call them, if left undealt with, can grow into a tree of evil. And the reason Jesus says that there's danger of, of hellfire is because what begins as tolerated seeds can grow into horrible oaks of deep-rooted evil. And so Jesus places unrighteous anger in the category of sins worthy of hell. Why? Because they are like hell, burning raging, uncompassionate, without mercy, and in willful opposition to any offer of redemption. That's hell. Remember that I mentioned in my confession uh, last month that one of the greatest dangers that pastors and teachers must guard against is that of taking personal correction meant for them only and turning it into another teaching for others. It's dangerous because it can seduce us into believing we are obeying the message by teaching it. This is self-deception. James chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, thus deceiving your own selves. I'm trying to be very careful to keep that in mind. I'm not trying to avoid addressing my own sin by teaching on it. After the Holy Spirit showed me my own heart and brought it home to me in, in, in a way that was unavoidable, there was such a sense of pain over it for days I felt deflated. Now, shame can make you feel deflated, but my loss of energy was not out of shame. God doesn't shame us, Joel chapter 2 verse 26 and 27, Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just a few verses that give me assurance that my Father is not seeking to shame me. It certainly was not out of any shaming that was offered by Mary or my family. They, they didn't. 
No, this deflation was a necessary and normal response to having been convicted of sin. He brought it home to me in such a way that I couldn't ignore it or even soften the blow. All I could do was grieve. This is what 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 calls godly sorrow, which brings life. The goal of this pain is redemptive, not destructive. Hebrews 12, the chastening of the Lord brings righteousness, which brings peace. God's perfect and, and just correction of us is always for the purpose of redemption and restoration. And that's why when we choose to hate, to refuse redemptive possibilities for another, we are aligning ourselves against the Spirit of Christ and putting ourselves in league with the ultimate opposition of the heart of God, which is hell. We're, we're currently in a cultural, political climate full of real danger of not only falling for a trap of unrighteous anger while thinking we are righteous, but also of joining others in that spirit and, and coming into a spirit of agreement which uh, produces a platform for uh, demonic powers to sit on. Just as, the, just as the Jews of Jesus' day felt fully justified in underground violent liberation activity fueled by years of Roman abuse, oppression, and cruelty, there's a rising spirit of political violence from both the left and the right, which the powers of hell are happy to fuel on both sides. The, the devil's plan is to drive them to a point of rage, then throw them together like fuel on dry sticks. Proverbs twenty two twenty four says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and be snared in your own soul. This is not the holy anger I wrote about in Against the Night, an anger born of holy fear and love for what is right that is moved to act righteously no matter what the personal cost for redemptive purposes. No, this is an anger born of hell, and if it erupts, it will not matter if it's erupting from the left side of hell or the right side of hell. It will be hell. Now, Jesus confronted this in his own disciples and in, in the one closest to him, for heaven's sakes, John and John's brother James. You remember this story as they approach a Samaritan village. The people reject them because of old racial hatreds and political anger uh, on both sides, Jew and, and, and Samaritan. James and John obviously are strongly influenced by the politics of their era because they offer to call fire down from heaven on them. Jesus rebukes them, warning them, quote, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. I have at times seen that danger in myself. Calling down fire on our enemies is attractive to our flesh and dangerous to our soul. Like Galadriel in Lord of the Rings, when she's offered the ring of power, she says, You will offer me the one ring freely, and in place of a dark lord you shall have a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night, 
Dreadful is the storm and the lightning, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All will love me in despair. Thankfully, she refuses the ring of power. And she says, I passed the test. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. How many of us would pass the test of Galadriel? If you had the ring of power right now and could set right all the things that make you angry, what would you be like? What would you become? That same passion for justice that moves us to hot tears and inspires righteous action can very subtly be twisted by the powers of the Dark Lord using our very own human hunger for good and right as his twisting instruments. Have you thought about that? Now, when Gandalf was put under the test of being offered the ring, he said, No, no, Frodo, don't tempt me. I would seek to use it for good, and it cannot be used so. How many of us know stories of vigilante justice that went wrong? We seek to use our power for good, motivated by what we would swear to be the purest of motives, and then it all bears fruit of evil. The greater the desire for the good, the greater the danger of it being perverted into evil. Did you hear what I just said? The greater the desire for good, on its own. I'm talking about human desire for good, not not under the lordship of Jesus, but that human desire. The greater the desire for good, the greater the danger of it being perverted. It takes a Lucifer to become a Satan. A peon angel could not become a Satan. You understand what I'm saying? The rabbis speak of the Yitzhar Hara and the Yitzhar Tov. That's the evil inclination and the good inclination that they are manifestations of the same energy in us. That's what they mean. The, the evil inclination and the good inclination come from the same basic human root. They, the scripture that's based on is Genesis chapter 4, where God says to Cain, uh, sin is crouching at the door, waiting to jump on you, and you must master it. The idea here is that the same, well, I mean, you see it in history. Hitler uh, wanted to be a priest and became instead Hitler. Stalin wanted to be a priest and instead became Stalin. Uh, the greater potential for good, the greater potential for evil. Great good can produce, if fallen and rebellious, great evil. Its nature... Its outcome depends on who we submit to as to whether it ends up for good or for evil. Yet the answer to this struggle cannot be that we just do nothing for fear that we might do the wrong thing. That's cowardice at its worst. What a dilemma. <laughs> well, that's only God can help us. I mean, so God relentlessly deals with these things in us. Only he knows how to do that. He, only he knows what's in us and what is the most dangerous part of our Yitzar Tov that could 
manipulated into the Yitzhar Hara. I mean, he's the only one who knows how long Moses needs to be purged in the desert. Uh, Bob Mumford said, you know why God kept Moses in the backside of the desert for 40 years? Because he couldn't change him in 39. Anyway, only God knows what in Joseph needs to come to death, chained to an Egyptian jail cell, feeling forgotten. Where are you now? What's your desert or your jail cell? How long? As long as it takes to purge out the part of you that would wear the ring of power proudly and arrogantly. But his purpose is never so that we will abandon all reason and then just go off into some pacifist monastery where we can contemplate the ethereal other world while avoiding our call to this one. Deliverance from the Yitzhar Hara, the evil inclination, is so that we might have full energy toward the Yitzhar Tov. I'm not saying that we need to balance our confessions of sin by appealing for righteous anger. Uh, I'm trying to uncover a subtle plot of the enemy to manipulate us into burning up our fuel rather than using it strategically to get the job done. Unrighteous anger is not the opposite of righteous anger. It is more a counterfeit of righteous anger. The opposite of unrighteous anger is humility. And the opposite of righteous anger is passivity. Unrighteous anger is not only sinful because it can do damage, it's also because as long as one is venting, he is obviously not acting righteously or redemptively. You understand the Hebrew meaning of the word righteous uh, doesn't mean you don't drink and smoke. It, it, it means you, you act in, in a saving, redemptive way. God's righteousness are, are his saving acts. When God splits the Red Sea, he's acting righteously in the Hebraic mind. Uh, the righteousness of God is the, the saving mercy and, and grace of God. Not, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. That's not righteousness. The false masculine can yell and scream and be just as impotent in the way uh, of that behavior as it would be if it took the opposite posture of impotent passivity. The fact is, whether we're yelling or screaming or whether we're sitting in a lotus position under a tree somewhere, if we're not acting in decisive godly ways to confront the crisis of our generation, then we're passive. On the other hand, if we're hidden, alone, feeling useless, but still waiting in faith for whatever God wants to do with us, waiting for his timing, waiting for him to manifest his purposes for us, no matter how on the bench we may feel, we are actively participating in the redemption of the world. There's no sin in anger per se. The sin is in the motive and the execution of the anger. We're not told in Scripture never to be angry. Scripture that seems to say that is always addressing a kind of anger that is out of control, raging, destructive, self-centered, fuming. 
we're told to cease from anger and put away wrath. Stop fretting in any way over evil, Psalm 37, verse 8. We're told not to allow the sun to go down upon our anger, Ephesians 4, 26. But the fact is that as long as we're living in a world where evil exists, if there is a love for what is good in our souls, there must also be anger especially when goodness is threatened. Romans 12, 9, hate what is evil. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, people who tend to abhor all forms of sinful anger, uh, or uh, let me say it like this, people who abhor all forms of anger under any circumstances are almost always people who have been hurt by sinful anger. Or they're deluded into a fantasy world where there's no such thing in their eyes as good or evil, and everybody is good, and everybody's trustworthy, like Neville Chamberlain telling us that uh, with misty-eyed, humanistic delight that he, quote, looked into the eyes of Hitler and saw that he was a man I could trust. But most people who vie for a totally pacifist position are victims of sinful anger. They've been hurt. Therefore, they believe all anger is sinful. Now, we tend to speak in American vernacular of an angry person as being mad. Uh, he's just, he's mad. He got mad. But the British use the term mad in a more accurate way. When they say someone is mad, they mean insane. But when anger is sinful, it is certainly accurate to refer to it as mad because the expression of sinful anger is insanity. Proverbs fourteen sixteen through 17 says, The fool rages in overconfident pride. He that is quick to anger is foolish. Proverbs 19, verse 19, A man, or a woman, by the way, of great wrath shall suffer sore punishment, and if you deliver him or her, you will still have to do it again and again. These and other verses refer not to anger rising in a heart that is set toward the good, but rather they refer to people who have become anger personified. It's not an anger that is in response to something and, and flares up and then dies back down. It's an anger boiling in them all the time and looking for an excuse to spew out at others in a destructive way. Proverbs twenty nine twenty two: An angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgressions. The source of an angry person's rage is explained in Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-five: He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. Now there's many examples in Bible history warning against a kind of anger that is rooted in overconfident pride, which explodes with no wisdom to guide it and ends in destruction. A great example would be Genesis chapter 34, and then Genesis 49, verses 5 and 7, if you want to study that story on your own. It should be easy to see after you read that story the logic of resisting this kind of anger. But if we've been hurt by this kind of anger, it's also easy to run in an equally destructive opposite extreme, that of suppressing all anger in any form and calling all anger uh, evil and embracing a passivity and claiming that passivity as godliness or love. Now, a feminizing, an overly feminizing influence 
over the past few years has sought to place all righteous masculine action for good into a category that they deem violent, harsh, and dangerous. And sadly, many men, even Christian men, often more Christian men than not, fall for this, thinking this kind of passivity is a manifestation of true Christian grace. My point here is that it is not possible to never get angry if we love. Love, by its very nature, will exert itself on behalf of its object. As Chesterton said, quote, The soldier does not fight because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. A husband or a father does not walk around the mall with his family looking for a fight and hoping someone crosses him so he can have an excuse to go off on them, but let an assailant approach his wife or child, and love will act in wrath. Notice how often Scripture speaks of those who are slow to anger. Uh, Proverbs fifteen eighteen again. He that is slow to anger avoids potential trouble. Proverbs nineteen eleven. The discretion of a man defers his anger. Proverbs sixteen twenty three. He that is slow to anger is better than the strong, and he who rules over his own spirit is better than he that takes a city. Scripture makes no place for the total abs- absence of anger in us. Though we must be careful not to be arrogant in comparing ourselves to God in this way, the Bible says God is slow to anger, and we're made in His image. Our fallen prideful nature can become puffed up if we're not careful, but still, we're like God in the potential for anger. It's in our nature. Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper said, quote, Wrath is a potential uh, source of strength that gives us the power to attack the repugnant. The power of anger is actually the power of resistance in the soul. The lack of wrath against injustice is a deficiency. St. Thomas Aquinas said, quote, The lack of the passion of anger is a vice. John Chrysostom said, quote, He who is not angry when he has cause to be is sinning. For unreasonable patience is a hotbed for many vices. It fosters negligence and incites not only the wicked, but the good to do wrong. I think that's an absolutely accurate statement. He who is not angry when he has cause to be sins. For unreasonable patience is a hotbed of many vices. It fosters negligence and incites not only the wicked, but even the good to do wrong. St. Gregory said, quote, Reason opposes evil more effectively when anger ministers at her side. We've got to learn to manifest it righteously, of course. It is human to get angry. It is perverse to live in a state of being angry with no desire to let it go. But it is utterly inhuman to not get angry in the face of evil and injustice. Godly common sense tells us this, but when it comes to the subject even of godly common sense, we get confused by religion. We end up with irrational, mutually exclusive concepts that cause us to not know the correct way to respond to conflict. 
This can easily feed into our natural tendency to want to avoid confrontation in the name of Christian love. So we end up embalmed by the very passivity that we're addressing here. Add to this the demonic attack on real manhood and the over-spiritualizing passivity of the false feminine, and godly action disappears. Then, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. But, I can hear the questions, and I respect the question because it's my question. What about Jesus' command and example? That, to me, is the most important question in any, any situation. What does the Lord Jesus command us and expect of us? At face value, it can certainly appear that he's calling for total non-resistance to evil. But that's only because we're poor students of Scripture with no Hebraic understanding. Jesus said he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Remember I said a while ago, that means not to to do away with it, but to fill it full, make it complete. So when he says things like in Matthew 5.29, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's pretty cut and dried, right? No need for clarification. So if I'm the husband or father walking with my family and an assailant attacks my wife and children, I'm to ask him to hit me upside my head for the glory of God. Is that right? If you believe that that's what that means, you ought to be hit upside the head. First, if Jesus means to never under any circumstance fight back against evil, then Paul is completely contradicting him in Romans twelve nine because he says, hate what is evil. But this is not the case. The word that is translated, do not resist evil. And testini is uh, spun by the King James Version translators for political purposes to make the people who read it think that it, the Bible commands them never to resist anything, just to be passive and docile. They thought it meant never to act in any way resistant to anything. Uh, wouldn't plain common sense refute that idea? You know, I th- you think it would. But anyway, but the word means more uh, in the Greek text, never resist uh violently or destructively or vengefully. See, this is the pattern all the way through uh, Scripture. It's not a rebuke of, of, uh, of protecting the innocent or protecting your loved ones or even protecting your property. It's, uh, it's always has to do with resisting uh, uh, the, what we've already said over and over. I don't need to keep saying it. Uh, violent, vengeful, the spirit of evil. That's what you resist. Jesus is never saying, never resist evil, lay down under it, be a doormat for me. He's never saying that. He's saying, never resist evil with evil. Secondly, understand that Jesus is not totally contradicting the Torah when he says, you've heard it said this, but I say this. He's not saying the Torah is wrong. Uh, many think, quote, an eye for an eye means you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. Mahatma Gandhi said, in reference to this scripture, if we take an eye for an eye, soon the whole world will be blind. 
But Gandhi did not understand the meaning of this scripture. It was normal in pagan cruelty for the taking of an eye to be responded to by the blinding of both eyes and the cutting off of an ear. In other words, escalating retaliation, revenge. The Torah, understanding the brokenness of men and the need for punitive justice in the face of crime, allowed for retribution, but just retribution. To correct Gandhi, this command of Torah protected at least one eye. You shall not take two eyes for an eye. You must seek retribution. It must only be an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. You shall not give vent to cruelty or escalating revenge. That's the meaning. So Gandhi misses uh, the point. Uh, He's wrong when he says that the word of God, if obeyed, would produce blindness. It's just the opposite. Uh, Jesus, the living Torah, says, Now I will fill this commandment to its proper fullness, which is, do not even seek retribution at all, but love your enemies and do good to those who hurt you. To paraphrase the meaning, quote, This is how true justice will come about, not the mere settling of a score, but the turning back of evil. This is how you resist evil and overcome it. Then Jesus offers other examples which his audience would have understood without our cultural misinterpretations getting in the way. When he says, quote, If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Why the right cheek? Have you ever wondered that? The only way that you're struck on the right cheek is if you're backhanded. You might use your left hand to strike, but it was culturally common to use the left hand only for unclean tasks. But even if they slapped you with the left hand in order to make you an unclean task, the point is, it's it's he's not describing here uh, um, a fist fight. He's describing class warfare rooted in political corruption. It's addressing the common and fully understood conflict of class against class. It was masters who struck servants this way, men who struck women, Romans who struck Jews. Under Roman law, if you struck your peer in a backhanded fashion, it would cost you a stiff fine in court. But to strike an underling, there was no penalty. Jesus is saying if you're struck like that, you're obviously being treated like an underling. Jesus addresses an audience who are not in position to do the slapping. They are only in position to be slapped. They have endured the outrage of forced submission a million times, and their suppressed anger for vengeance has no outlet unless they become suicidal. Because if they fight back, they die. So for them, they only have two options. Lie down and be crushed, or fight back and be crushed. Then along comes this young teacher from Nazareth. And in the face of such seeming hopelessness, surrounded by Roman oppression, Jesus teaches them a third way which resists evil while refusing to act evil in the process. It's a way that requires courage and strength and wisdom and submission to God and faith in God faith in God's righteous, redemptive action. 
but that's something their opponent could never manifest, no matter how strong or oppressive. It's the superior power of righteousness that says, you struck me to put me in my place. Well, you failed. Try again. I deny you the power to humiliate me. I'm a human being like you. Your status does not alter my status. If the abuser struck again, it entered a different social category, one even cruel Romans usually would not have allowed for. The point of all this is that retaliation under these circumstances is futile and fruitless. Servile acquiescence ultimately leads to the same place. But for those who live transcendently with their focus on another kingdom, they can tap into a power that earthly bullying has no weapon against. Now, this is a principle of reality and not some overtly mystical, surreal mindset. It can be seen in the effects that it's had in recent history through the examples of Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and the church in South Africa. Just for a few examples, it's very hard, especially for most men, to grapple with this principle for reasons that we hopefully will address later. But it does bring a a great deal of relief to realize that Jesus is not commanding servile passivity in the face of evil. Have you thought about the fact that his own example is found in John 18, verses 1 through 23, where Jesus himself is struck in just exactly the way he is addressing in Matthew 5, with, with, uh, struck with the palm of the hand, obviously meant to demean him and, quote, put him in his place. Jesus does not, in this case, turn his other cheek to the striker, but he pointedly confronts the evil action by asking a rhetorical question which exposed the evil behind the abusive act. Jesus knows there's no justice there. He knows there's no physical power available to free him or protect him from their grip. That he could call down the wrath of heaven on them was certain, but because he knew who he was and why he was there, there was no chance of him doing that, no temptation to give in to that uh, kind of self-protection. But later on in verse 36, Jesus explains to Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world, that if it had been, then his servants would fight. Now we'll address this fact more later, I hope, but it's noteworthy that nowhere in the New Testament do we find converted soldiers compelled to resign their commissions. When soldiers approached John the Baptist asking how they could repent, John did not say, resign your military commission, lay down your sword, and become a pacifist. He tells them in Luke 3.14, do not do violence, make no one fearful. In other words, don't oppress people. Here again, the point is clear. It is violent, cruel, destructive action they must repent of. They're not to merely lay down their swords because any use of the sword is evil, Because later, Paul and Peter both explain that soldiers, or policemen, bear the sword because of evildoers and are the hand of God to hold back evil. A spirituality that makes absolutely no place for physical force to protect the weak is foreign to both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. The command is, thou shalt not murder, ratzah in Hebrew. You shall do no murder, not you shall not kill. When Jesus says in Matthew 5.39, do not resist one who is evil, 
when translated back into Hebrew, it seems to be a quotation of a well-known Hebrew proverb cited in Psalm 37, verses 1 and 8, and in Proverbs 24, verse 19. Do not fret, hara in Hebrew, because of evildoers. Do not fret. Now, we tend to think that the word fret means don't become overly concerned and worried, but the Hebrew word there, hara, means to boil over, explode, or lash out. So the New English Bible translation of Psalm 37 is accurate when it says, Do not strive to outdo the evildoer or emulate those who do wrong. Be angry no more. Have none to do, nothing to do with wrath. Strive not to outdo evil by doing evil. Ara implies intense anger resulting in enraged or violent response. Such anger leads to more anger back and forth so that the violence increases. This amounts to responding to evil on its own terms and ever-increasing competition of evil produces total takeover of evil. Bosnia, Rwanda, Ireland, other examples you could think of. Uh, The Good News Bible says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who does you wrong. This phrase refers to a wrong suffered in the context of social life. Obviously, it is not referring to an attack. It refers to revenge and competing for one-upmanship, not protecting our loved ones. Proverbs 24, verse 29 says, Don't say I will do to him what he's done to me. I will pay him back uh, for what he's done. Don't do that. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, See that none of you pays back evil with evil. Instead, always try to do good to each other and to all people. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 9, Do not repay evil with evil or curse with curse, but bless in return. That is what you've been called to do so that you might inherit a blessing. Romans 12, 14, 17 through 19. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Do not curse them. Do not pay anyone back with evil for evil. For it is possible, uh, for as much as it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, do not take revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Our response to evil does does have to be resistant. It is morally wrong to tolerate evil. However, we must continue to show love for the evildoer. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.44 Now, in Exodus 22, verse 2, it says, If a thief is seized while tunneling in to break into your house and he's beaten to death, the person who killed him is not guilty of bloodshed. Jesus Commenting on that verse says in Matthew 24, verse 43, If the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. If you interpret Jesus' word about turning the other cheek the way some do, then Jesus should have said when the good man of the house uh, sees the thief coming, he should uh, meet him at at the entrance of the thief's uh, uh, penetration of the house and say, Here I am, knock me upside my head. It's just ludicrous. Leviticus 19.16 says, You shall not secure yourself from danger while watching your neighbor being attacked. 
Now, the context of this verse originally was addressing the responsibility of a witness to speak up on behalf of a falsely accused person in order to save them from misjustice. But it was expanded um, in later rabbinic teaching to include not standing back and watching while someone is being attacked, but that you are responsible before God to save the one who's being attacked from the attack. Now, Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, if one is overpowered when alone, two can resist the attack. That's just common sense, isn't it? Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence is not carried out speedily against evil, the hearts are set on evil. Ecclesiastes 7.17, don't be wicked, for why should you die before your time? Now, there's a lot more I wish we had time to address in this. Uh, Psalm 10, Psalm 11, Psalm 50, Isaiah chapter 59, verses 3 through 8, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Also, Numbers chapter 35 concerning the laws of murder and the avenger of blood. Uh, If you want to study those things, it would be helpful to you. In closing, I want to tell you a quick story about uh, a beautiful illustration of one who bears the sword as a minister of God's just judgment, but also who bore the cross and brought redemption to an evildoer. I I was acquainted years ago with uh, an FBI agent named Frank Watts. Uh, Frank was instrumental in the uh, uh, arrest of a KKK a racist in Mississippi named Tommy Terrence. Uh, Frank shot him, uh, arrested him, got him out of the hospital and put him in jail. And while in jail, Frank led Tommy Terrence to Christ. Uh, The last contact I had with Tommy Terrence, he was pastoring a Presbyterian church. This KKK racist whose hands were covered with blood who was responsible for the burning down of churches and God only knows what other kinds of evil, was brought to justice by the sword of the Lord in Frank Watts's hand and brought to mercy by the cross of the Lord in Frank Watts's heart. Uh, that's the ultimate goal of all this, is redemption and salvaging of life.